This is a first for the B2B Community Builder Podcast, formerly Chief Executive Connector Podcast, in that this is the first live internet talk show version recording of this show. If you've been following along my journey over the past couple of years, you know I've iterated through some language on what I'm offering, right? Community creation for the future of business development. Then I got the language of the relationship flywheel. As I try to find my way of selling what I do in the relationship flywheel, I went hard at figuring out what my unique selling proposition is. And it really relies on this idea that doing podcasts or your videos for YouTube or anything like that as a live internet talk show allows you to build strategic relationships unlike any other form of content production. So I decided I had to eat my own dog food and I had to create a live version of this show to show my clients, my prospects, anybody that's interested in anything I'm doing that I truly, truly am committed to this methodology and I really believe in it as far as a business development tool. So for this first show, I had on Mike Cardamone and Jeff Becker, who are the CEO and managing partner and managing director, respectively, of a venture capital group called Forum Ventures. And what they did is that they launched first a accelerator out of Silicon Valley that is the B2B SaaS accelerator and recently have rebranded it into a community, right? So fits right into everything. It's the power of community for business development. It is uh, B2B SaaS tools and go-to-market strategies. These guys are a couple of the smartest guys in any room that they walk into. And they've also built the most diverse form of venture capital motion as well. So really, really fruitful conversation. We had almost 40 people show up live to the call. Great questions from the audience. I hope that you really enjoy this and I hope that you keep a lookout on LinkedIn, on Facebook for the next live version of the B2B Community Builder podcast so that you can show up and ask your own questions for some of these amazing guests. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, in my walks, every man I meet is my superior in some way and in that I learn from him. This means people are at their best when they are surrounded by a community of others with complementary skill sets that can leverage each other for a greater goal. Welcome to the B2B Community Builder Podcast. I am your host and Chief Executive Connector, Pablo Gonzalez, and together we are here to prove that community creation is a secret weapon when it comes to business development and growing incredible businesses. I'll be bringing you world-class pioneers in the fields of sales, marketing, and relationship building to teach you the latest cutting-edge plays for category design, demand generation, community management, networking, building influence, and leadership all the skills you'll need to unite clients, team members, and partners under one mission and build a community to propel your career or company to unthinkable results. Now, I don't have to tell you that I would love to hear from you and anything that you need to get a hold of me is in the show notes in whatever app you're listening to right now. So just buckle in 
If you believe in the power of community, if you believe that relationships are more valuable than transactions, if you're interested in learning the playbook of the most forward-thinking, most innovative, most emotionally intelligent business leaders out there today, all you got to do is hit that subscribe button right now, get ready for an awesome conversation, and let's get connected. Welcome, everybody. This is the first edition of the live version of the B2B Community Builder podcast. So it's like the first time I'm doing something live like this. It's also a rebrand of my old podcast, The Chief Executive Connector, because it's not about me. This is about the people that are out there doing community building work for business development, which is something that I deeply, deeply believe in. And I got a great opportunity when somebody reached out to me via email about a couple of a couple of fellas putting together some really impressive stuff out in Silicon Valley. Uh, they formed the biggest B two B SaaS accelerator. They have they got a breaking announcement that we're gonna we're gonna go into today of having rebranded into Forum Ventures. But I just want to welcome today Mike Cardamon and sorry Mike Mike Cardamon right yeah that's got it. you Mike you Cardamon got yeah. and Jeff Becker co-founders yeah. uh, I mean managing partners of Forum Ventures. Welcome, fellas. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I didn't realize it was the first one. I'm excited to be on the first one. Yeah, yeah. You guys you guys, you guys, guys are the launch. Listen, man, I, yeah. after our conversation that we had when we first connected, I, I just, there was no better, there was no better case study for this, right? Somebody who is going from an accelerator to a community that really believes in this stuff and doing it at the level that you're doing it. I thought it all made sense. So we figured why, you know, put all of our energy behind it and uh, actually promote the heck out of it. Get you guys as much exposure. We got 17 people on so far. I told myself if we got 20 people on, it's a success. So I'm, I'm pumped about this and I want to, I just want to give a little key to everybody that's in the chat. I love that you're already chiming in. You know, I'm, I'm going to do a world call. Ja- Jakob, good to see you from Germany. Brett from Medina, Ohio. Good to have you. Jenny Weigel, an old college buddy of mine that's chiming in from LA. Lydia Flocini, good to see you from San Francisco. Lydia, we've become friends on, on LinkedIn lately. Gina is out here supporting Consultoria Uno. Gisela joining us from London today. Who else? Mary Lobson from Winnipeg, Canada. We're international right now. This is wonderful. Sam Young from the UK. This is awesome. Awesome. Lynn's Florin, another good buddy of mine from LA with the Growth Network podcast. And it's cool to see every Will Dukes, my old moderator in the Leadership Miami program. Jen Filzen, a client of a client that has become a close friend and somebody I work with. This is great. So without further ado, guys, you're the start of the show. Start of the show. My first question is, you were two weeks ago, you were Excel Prize. When we first started talking, you were Excel Prize startup. And now you're Forum Ventures, you're a community. Can you give me the, the breaking news announcement that was just published in TechCrunch? What the big change was, what you guys are doing now, and, and, and let us in on that right now. Yeah. Yeah, Jeff, I can take it. But yeah, just to give the quick back, hey, everyone, Mike Cardamon. So yeah, we initially started as Excel Prize back in 2014 as a B2B SaaS focused accelerator, which just meant like we invest in founders at the very early stage when they have like an early version of a product where you often the first check in, they may or may not have customers. And we felt like there were a lot of general accelerators at the time, but not really many focused on, on B2B SaaS. Launched that in San Francisco in 2014. And now, you know, since then we've invested in like 200 companies through that that have gone to raise like well, it might be 350 million now in following funding from a bunch of brand name funds. And so we've seen a lot of companies work. We've seen a lot of companies not work. But over time, what we've realized is like the power of community, to your point. Like, you know, 
a lot of founders talk about wanting to work with VCs who have been there and done that and have built companies and done that. How about joining a community with 200 people who have been there and done that or are going through the same thing as you and, and like have sold into the same type of customers or have dealt with SOC 2 audits or like all the things you do and go through as a founder. And so we just started realizing like the power of our Slack community and like our, our founders engaging with each other and engaging with founders who are like one step ahead of them or are selling into a similar industry. And it started to become apparent to us that like a big part of what we were building was, was like platform and community. And that that was like a big value add for a lot of the founders we were investing in. And, and then as we started building that, we also, you know, just recently, which was part of the announcement, announced that we, we just raised a new seed fund as well, which allows us to kind of continue to fund and support and engage with founders at just that next stage. So part of it is like follow on investing in some of the companies coming through our own accelerator program, but also flexibility to invest in deals outside the accelerator program into like kind of institutional seed rounds where it's maybe like a one to $4 million round. And so, you know, as we evolved from just being this accelerator and running the program to this kind of, you know, this platform and community where we're supporting founders at multiple different stages, we felt like it made sense to rebrand and we felt like forum was a, was a good name for it. Like we have a, a portal our founders can log into and we were calling it kind of the founder forum internally. And there were just like a lot of reasons that we felt like forum was like the perfect word for the type of fund and platform and community we're trying to build. Uh, and so we just rebranded, announced our seed fund, announced our fourth accelerator fund. And it's been a, it's been a fun couple of weeks since. That's cool. I love, I love the idea of the psychology behind it's a forum, right? Like you are, it's very much in line with my company as be the stage, right? Like if you can be the stage of something as opposed to the star on the stage, everybody wants to do business with you. If you can, if you can be the king maker, the queen maker, right? You can yeah. put people on and gain them exposure. I'd love to ask a couple of, you know, asking for a friend here questions, but the, the difference between an accelerator and a, and a seed fund, can you kind of just talk through that real quick for me? Yeah. So an accelerator, the way a lot of accelerators work and ours is, I think is a little bit different, but you know, there's like the programmatic piece. So, so basically companies apply, you know, we provide an initial hundred K of funding. They come into a cohort style program and, and so they're kind of surrounded by other peers at, at a similar stage. Like I said, it's usually a kind of founding team, some early version of a product they may or may not have customers. There's the programmatic piece where like, you know, one to two days a week, we have mentors coming in to talk about a lot of different tactical sessions or roundtable discussions or ask me anything. So they get to interact with a lot of like executives, CEOs, founders of companies that are further ahead who can kind of share their knowledge. So it might be like, a VP of sales coming in talking about that or someone doing demand gen or content marketing, whatever it is. And then the other piece is like, we really act as like a fractional co-founder. So it's a small, you know, small cohorts, only like up to 10 companies per MD. And Jeff can speak to this a bit more. And it's like, we're basically like your, your where you're like your sales go to market founder. Like we're in the weeds with you, helping you define your ideal customer profile, helping you build out like, lead list, giving you feedback on sales conversations. Like, you know, Jeff spent, I mean, he can give his background, but spent, you know, nine years, you know, as in sales and sales leadership at LinkedIn and just like knows this, like the back of his hand. So it's like having someone of his caliber being like your VP of sales in-house and like helping you through the go-to-market 
is kind of how we think about it. Like we're basically like fractional co-founders. A seed fund is less of the like program. Like we still support our companies and go to market. We still, they can leverage our network for customer introductions and everything. It's less of that like built-in program and less of the like very hands-on like weekly one-on-ones like we do through the accelerator program. And then it's often part of like a bigger round. So in the accelerator, we could be the first and only check into the company at the time. Out of the seed fund, it's usually part of a one to $4 million round and we're writing like a hundred to 600K check or something into a bigger round with a bunch of other investors involved. So that's kind of the difference. Jeff, anything you would add to that? I think you covered it, Mike. There's uh, a lot to love about the program. We can go deeper on anything from go to market to the investor week that we do, but it's really a a powerful program. I had the benefit of being a mentor for a couple of years prior to joining full-time. So I know the program well and the feedback from the founders and the results that Mike and his team created over the last, you know, five or six years. So happy to go into that as the chat lights up with questions. I see it's already going. So that's great. Yeah, for sure, Jeff. Listen, man, we're definitely going to pick your brain about the go-to-market stuff. I know that that's, that's your specialty. I'm dying to get into that. So as I understand it, then it's the accelerator is kind of like when you're getting started, seed fund is the next stage. That's when you're funded, you're, you're off and you're kind of like, let's say accelerator is elementary school seed fund. You're now a teenager and you're out in the world and, and, and you're, you're invested at that level. And there's other influences that isn't just the home base of the accelerator, right? Yeah. yeah. Cool. So, so then I'm a big, obviously I'm a big proponent in the community piece, right? I would love to, I would love to know just kind of how you guys, when you came together, why did you think that there was another accelerator needed? Why do you think there's another community needed in, in, in Silicon Valley? Are there, are there, are there enough of these? Is there ever going to be enough of this stuff? Uh, you know, what, what was the, what was the pain point? from 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 the thing that you wanted to solve like i some some people phrase this as like what make you know like what pisses you off and what makes you want to cry like what 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 was yeah. doing that to you guys that you decided to embark on this yeah so i had the good fortune and like it was it was basically luck where i joined box back in 2008 when it was about 25 people and you know back then like it was so early into like the shift to cloud like i was having to when like we, i remember having conversations with like potential customers and having to explain like what the cloud is and no we don't sell cardboard boxes like you know this like you know they would it was just like it was very clear that it was it was very very early in that and even by 2014 when we started this it was it was still like very much the early innings of this shift to like SaaS, the SaaS model and cloud. Like, you know, there were obviously early like Salesforce and Box and Dropbox, like the first wave, Marketo, but we felt like it was still like very early innings in that shift and there was a big opportunity. And when I talked to founders who had been through other accelerators, like that were more generalist, there's some really, really good ones out there, but they felt like having one that was like really focused on B2B SaaS would be would be really helpful. You'd get a lot more like tactical advice because if you're a SaaS founder and like someone who's been really successful building a direct to consumer business, you know, they may not, their advice, they may be really good at what they do, but their advice may not be relevant at all for you as a SaaS founder. So we felt like there was opportunity to, to do something more specifically focused around B2B SaaS. And we were able to get a kind of a critical mass of people from that first wave of SaaS companies. So like early Salesforce, early Marketo, like CEO of Gainsight, CEO of Zawara, like a lot of really good kind of SaaS people. And so that was the thesis behind it and like why we did it. You know, certainly even then probably could have argued that there were too many accelerators and so many more have been created since then. And 
there's a ton of resources out there for startups now. But yeah, we you know we've we've been able to kind of build a good good brand and reputation in the space, just being like maniacally focused on the founder experience and being focused on B2B SaaS. And we're now running it in San Francisco, New York and Toronto and and really kind of pretty flexible around hybrid and remote and all that kind of stuff as well. That's cool, man. I love the, I love the niche down, right? Like I think niching down is something that I, I, I don't know if this plays into the go-to-market strategy that you guys preach and how, and how much it has to do. And I hope we get to talk about category design, but I, I just want to say, I think it's obvious that it, it was needed, right? Like you, you have returned something like 80, 80 plus percent of dollars invested. Do you, do you want to tell those statistics? I was reading that as TechCrunch. I thought it was incredible. Like the re- the return on dollars invested and, and kind of like the multiple of where you guys are at so far. Yeah. So our first fund, which is the one we have the most data on, you know, it's a 10 year fund because we're investing super early, but we're, you know, six years in, we've returned about 87% of committed capital of the fund so far to investors. And then the rest of the funds marked up at like, I think it's like three and a half back about right now and still growing. Like we have, I don't know, 20 something companies still going in the fund. And, and so it's still growing and, and, you know, I think it's going to end up being a pretty good fund. And then fund two and fund three are actually pacing ahead of where fund one was. So it's been, yeah, it's been, it's been nice to see the results. Cause it's been a, you know, it's been a grind building this for six years. So it's, it's fun to see it start to snowball and start to see the results. Like venture is one of those, weird industry is where it just takes a long, long time to see if you're any good at it. And you just have to be incredibly patient. So it's, it's fun to see the first funds starting to work. That's cool, man. So how does the, how does the playbook change now that it's going from just accelerator to community, right? Like what is, what, how, do, how does the operation change from your end? Like how does the questions that you're asking change? How, how does it? Yeah, it's a good question. Any, I'm monopolizing yeah. the time <laughs> here, Jeff, any, yeah. any, you want to jump in on any of that? Yeah, I think about it in a few ways. You know, first is around the founder experience. Who are you surrounding them with? Is it relevant to their business? And can they help in an outsized way? And so I think we really need to get quite focused around how we help the founders have an amazing experience, whether they're in the seed fund or the accelerator. And so that comes across in a few ways. First is with each other. So founding a company is a lonely journey, right? Are you with like-minded folks in a like-minded industry that are facing similar problems? And to the extent that we can uh, do that without being competitive across companies can be wildly impactful when companies can help each other get the right answers really quickly. It takes, you know, months and sometimes years off of the decision-making curve and the learning curve. And so that's really powerful. The second is really around the companies we can introduce them to. So along this idea of community, we have a community of executives that focus entirely on innovation. And we do a really thoughtful job around connecting them to one another you know, when, when they're in the program and doing that relative to the unmet needs of the core company, as well as to what the founders can solve for. And so if we can help them with traction, you know, that is a, a material benefit. And then of course, there's the, the broader community of folks who know us and who've worked with us, who've invested with us and who understand the brand and can perpetuate, you know, how we think about deal flow, how we think about doing diligence, right? We're a, we're a small and mighty team of 10, but when we think about making these decisions, you know, Mike already mentioned, but we enlist the help of some of the world's best CEOs when it comes to, you know, B2B software. And so I think, you know, community can take a lot of different forms, but essentially we feel like we're building all of those things across all three dimensions, you know, founder experience, corporate innovation, relative detraction, and then of course, doing diligence to make good decisions. I hear, I hear like enormous value for the founder. Is it also by going the community route? Are you also kind of 
differentiating yourself, like diversifying yourself from the effort that you have to put in? Like, is yeah. does it make it easier for you to operate by running the community route? Yeah. Or go ahead, Jeff. Yeah. I was going to say, in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. You know, the same way to coach our founders around creating network effects or having value happen in the absence of us, that certainly does happen, right? The founders working with each other, amazing example of how they can help one another be very successful. But in other ways, you know, we are continuing to you know, delegate that out to technology and delegate it out to, you know, Slack and experience, but we're doubling down on things that we can, are allowing us to continue to build, right? So as we build out the community, you know, we are thinking about how do we add great investors? How do we add great innovation executives? And so ideally we're focused on the things that could be most impactful to the business and, you know, delegating and automating some of the things that are, you know, in flight and on rails, the same way we coach our founders to do the same thing and create leverage, you know, for their businesses. We're trying to do the same. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that's one of the big shifts is like trying to figure out to just point, like how to, how to make us more scalable as a community so that we're not the bottleneck in making in like people getting value out of the community. Right. So part of that is like, you know, when we see people talking in Slack about certain, you know, does anyone have a contract for, you know, an employment agreement or an options agreement or like, you know, different things they need rather than just like, pointing them to the Slack, we just have built out a template of all these contracts that people are asking for all the time. So they can literally just log into the portal and it's probably there. And if it's not, we'll add it soon. And so like, that's one example, or instead of like someone saying, I want to connect with such and such, like one of your mentors or another founder, can you make an intro? We've now made that where everyone's searchable in our portal. And then we use like technology, like bridge and other things where we can automate the request of intro and automate the connection. So we're basically just trying to operationalize and make us more scalable so that we're not the bottleneck in in the community getting value out of the community. And it's not just us deriving the value and us making the intros and all that kind of stuff. I love that. I love that combination of the the collective human knowledge enabled by technology and, and, and enabled by these platforms that take away the friction. Lydia, Lydia Flocini in the chat put something I like. It's the way that you build your community will cascade knowledge, which is a huge differentiator. I love to think of the community as a, as a cascade of knowledge. And Jenny, who she's been working in community for 10 years, she submitted a question ahead of time. She just launched her Jenny.community LLC as a community consultant. She put in a question here that is, with community being such a hot topic right now, what do you think is the biggest misconception of community when it comes to a business model or, or what they're doing? Interesting. Biggest misconception. Well, I'll take a stab at it. I don't know if it'll be a, it'll be a home run here, but the way that I, I, I see companies evolving from this top-down SaaS model to a product-led growth model, and I think sometimes people focus or founders may focus on the end user as the community rather than the community as the community, and they confuse what is go-to-market with what Andreessen recently called go-to-community as a strategy. And so thinking about, you know, how do you build a brand? How do you build engagement? How do you, uh, again, build value in absence of yourself, you know, doing the work? And so I don't think it's enough anymore to just think about your end users as the community. It's how do you engage them? How do you add value? How do you help them to add value to one another? And so really understanding those folks, spending time with them. You know, when we talk about the innovation community as an example, we spent, you know, hundreds of hours talking with these folks, understanding where the bottlenecks what are the pain points? And if we can you know, really understand them and we can involve them in our business, the fact that we may be adding value in the innovation circles for them is wildly valuable just to the innovation folks. But 
on the other side of it, it comes back to us full circle because they're perpetuating our brand. They're introducing us to investors. They're helping us with diligence. They're helping us with our customers as they help, as they go to market and look for traction. And so the community may not be the core business, but it certainly is a huge exponent on the business. You know, one of the things we say internally is massive force, massively applied. And so, you know, you can't do that without a lot of people rowing the boat in the same direction. That's an awesome answer, man. Like I'd never heard the term go to community. Can you, can you tell me a little bit more about that? How you're, how you're like conceptualizing go to market, the difference between go to market and go to community and like where you're learning that stuff from? Yeah. I don't want to steal it from, or I don't want to not plagiarize it, but the new blog that Andreessen put out future, uh, I did a great post on this and the idea that you have a strategy all around the community and how you think about the ripple effects that you're creating in a wave of brilliant minds relative to the people who might be your users. And while they might be similar or there might be some overlap, the, the compounding of them acting together is, is outsized. And so you know, be thoughtful about those two groups separate of one another, right? bifurcate the two, and then understand the connection points of where the value can be added between them. And yeah, it's a great read. I, I recommend Future. I've really been loving it. They announced that blog a few weeks back and I've been getting a lot of value out of seeing how they're thinking about interesting industries. Cool, man. I'm going to hit you up and to get the link for that thing and put it in the show notes for this. That sounds awesome. Are, are, are you... Are you thinking about that from a conceptual standpoint right now, or have you already started kind of taking action on how you're going to do that bifurcation and how you're going to, how are you going to do that stuff? Yeah, certainly. I think I, I touched on it. Maybe I wasn't as explicit, but we are really focused right now, at least in my part of the business around building what we're calling the innovation forum. So okay. think about big companies that want to work with startups. And today, the way that they do it candidly is it's really hard to understand ROI. Right? If you're an innovation executive, you sit in a big company and you want to understand what's on horizon two or horizon three, you want to think about what these startups are doing in the context of your business, it's easy to get introductions. You know, it's easy to work with uh, you know, a great innovation services company, but it's really hard to go back internally and justify why you spent the money you did. And these things can range from mid-six figures up to you know, many millions of dollars. And so what we're doing at Forum, we're trying to think about how do we provide outsized value relative to the investment? How do we provide curated deal flow? How do we think about making introductions to the right companies at the right time? How do we run workshops with these people to help educate them on what it means to be an innovation executive within their company? And by building that brand over time, so much goodness comes from that. And so that being a kind of a go-to community for us as one example, the yield from that is really portfolio traction. It's you know winning deals with companies that are looking to understand how to get into and break into this market. We talked about differentiation at the beginning of the call. I think one of the reasons we're seeing such large checks in venture right now is because it's very hard to differentiate when the structure is a 2% management fee, right? And so how do you add value to these companies? You write a bigger check, but that's not always a good thing for the company. It comes with big expectations. It maybe over dilutes them too early. And so what we really want to think about is um, how do we right size the value? How do we measure the value and how do we do that consistently as part of the relationship. So innovation group would be one community and how we think about go to market or go to community. And then separately, how does that yield an outsized value for investors and for the fund? And how, what are all the connection points between those two groups? Just going to say, like you had kind of explained it, really glad you just dove deeper into that, right? Because as, as, as somebody that's not in that world all the time, right? Like I'm not in Silicon Valley, I'm in Jacksonville, Florida. It's basically the opposite, although it's coming up, right? The idea that the idea that an accelerator kind of model or a venture fund or whatever doesn't do this is kind of counterintuitive to me, right? Like, like as somebody that, that sees the value in business development on this like relationship enablement piece as the highest multiplier, I, I, I find it kind of shocking that 
it's not clear already to every other fund and every other accelerator and every other community that the way you differentiate, the way you build a moat is by quantifying the people that you have around you and and how that is valuable to the whole. Is this, it sounds like not everybody's doing this is, is I guess what I'm saying. So like, how did you guys, where did the inspiration come from? Is there something that you're modeling? Is there something that you saw from a personal story that you're like, no, 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 this is what needs to happen. And we need to quantify this as opposed to just going out and getting more money and getting into a pissing competition with people. Uh, yeah. What's that? I'll let you take that one. Yeah. So look, I think like other accelerate, there are certainly some other accelerators that have built amazing communities that are really valuable for their, for their founders that they work with. I think, you know, the difference between a traditional fund and us is just inherently the volume of companies that we invest in because we have the seed fund and the accelerator model. Like we're investing in, you know, 60 companies a year, whereas like a traditional seed fund or even series A fund might invest in a dozen a year. So our community and the size of our community can just compound a lot faster because of the volume of companies we have in. And they typically don't, because we have the accelerator with the programmatic piece, like we have an organic way to have a high amount of touch points with a bunch of mentors, which are great operators who are also kind of like part of our, part of our community. And so, yeah, I think we just like naturally have, have a, a product in the sense that allows us to build a, a community a lot faster, which we, which then I think gives us an advantage over a lot of more traditional funds. I think it's brilliant, man. I love it. All right. So real quick, Brett Ruiz, he's a, he's a B2C company, right? And I know he's developed his, it's actually kind of brilliant. Like he's got a home remodeling, a vertically integrated kind of like design build home remodeling company. He's building out an app, but so he's, he's more B2C. You guys are focused on, on B2B SaaS, but these concepts, everything that you're doing, are there, do you know of other kind of like accelerators or, or funds that operate the way that you do, but more in the B2C space? Have you heard of any of that stuff? Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's like, you know, YC, Y Combinator is probably the biggest well-known and best one. And then there's a bunch of other, you know, like tech stars and 500 startups and a number of others that will do a mix of B2B and B2C companies. Okay. Yeah. Do you find that, are they leaning into community also? Or is this, or, or is that more a newer wave that you guys are pioneering? Yeah, no, I think, yeah, I think all... All Techstars, YC, and 500, like a lot of the top accelerators that that we like run into all the time, I would say are all trying to kind of build some version of community. I think it becomes a little bit more challenging when the types of businesses are all very different, unless you're at the scale that like a YC is at where they're doing hundreds of companies a year and therefore have enough of each type of company to kind of build sub-communities within it. Um, But yeah, I mean, a lot of accelerators are trying to build some version of community as well. Cool. Makes sense. Thanks. All right. Let's get into, let's get into the, the go-to-market stuff that you guys are already like really, really well seeped in. You now have this access. You've, you've touched a lot of companies. Your data set is significant. What are you seeing right now in go-to-market that seems to be the move or the moves or better said as Jakob is putting here in the, in the, in the Q and A, if you were going to start a SaaS, you know, what would, what would be your go-to, what would be your go-to-market move? Man, it's interesting. This is really where the rubber hits the road. And I will say one of the reasons I love working at Forum, one of the reasons I chose this six months ago when I joined officially 
is the small cohorts. You know, I'm working as a managing director with 10 companies at a time and that's it. And I'm like Mike said, you know, they're head of sales, so to speak. And we have, we have multiple programs like that. But the reason I bring that up is because it's very unique depending on the company. How well capitalized are you? What are your strengths as a founding team? What market are you operating in? And what are those unique insights? And so I think you have to take the time to really understand each business, understand each of the founders and help them optimize for where they can be successful. So I'm not going to sit here and say there's one size fits all. We're seeing obviously a massive trend towards product-led growth. You know, we're seeing a lot of interesting things happen relative to skill sets and the ease of an access to start a SaaS company, right? From like zero to scale in just a few months. But I can give you some examples if it's helpful, right? Even examples that are not in our fund. Like one you might be familiar with is, you know, Seamless versus DoorDash, right? It's a famous example where Seamless had, had won in the urban centers, essentially. And DoorDash was like, you know, this isn't, this isn't the way that it's, it's going to work. And everyone's like, no, 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 Seamless already has it. But what DoorDash really understood was that by starting outside the major cities, by starting in the urban or the urban or suburban areas, rather, that's where most of the population actually existed. And the last mile logistics problem was one that needed to be solved and that Seamless couldn't. And so they started out of the cities and moved in because solving that problem in the cities was not as difficult. And so sometimes you have to look at the business, you have to really understand what are you solving? What is the long-term you know, view on this business and how it evolves over time? And so that's the kind of care we take with each business to understand the unique insight, the founder's technical ability, right? The team's ability, you know, enterprise SaaS is not for the faint of heart. I managed people that were doing it for 20 or 30 years as a, as a career and still, you know, can struggle from time to time. And so to take someone who's a tech founder and drop them into that sales motion, is not necessarily the easiest thing to do. So you got to think and right size the strategy for the company. But I love doing it because like you get to workshop. Like the other day, I was, we're closing a new company for this cohort actually. And, and instead of just analyzing the business, we did an hour workshop. How should we go to market? What's the best way to do it? And we just, we whiteboarded and we just had a good time actually. And it was somewhere one of these moments where you could feel like the founders were coachable, where they were really adaptable and that they were really smart. Like, frankly, they could go toe to toe on topics they had really never focused on. And like, those are the kind of people this early in the game precede that I want to be investing in. So I kind of went around the answer there, but no silver bullets. Well, I get it. So yeah. it sounds to me, Mike, were you going to say something? I was just to say to Jeff's point, like it really depends on the business as well, like the market dynamics and the business that you're trying to build. So, you know, we'll, like I'll see a lot of if you're like a vertical SaaS company in like a pretty niche industry, like you have a pretty narrow set of ideal customer profiles. And like it's just, you know, it's all about like how do you get in front of those people and how do you build credibility? And so oftentimes I see companies leverage like, who are the people talking at the con the like two or three conferences that like everyone in that niche industry goes to? And like, can you get them involved in your business as an advisor, as an investor, like in a way where like now the next time they're talking at the conference, they mention you or they get you involved somehow? Like it's all about building credibility and getting in front of people when you're in like a niche industry. And then another example is like we have a company called First Base where like you know, there was a major shift to remote work during COVID, which creates opportunity to then become a thought leader in, in that space. And so then he started just posting a lot of like interesting content on Twitter and, and was just like very consistent about it and was like, you know, sharing, you know, interesting data points and things he was hearing in the market, which then became even more interesting, the more people he talked to. And that has become like a major driver of inbound leads for them 
And that was enabled because there was a major shift which creates opportunity. So if there's not a major shift, there, it's harder to create opportunity on a platform like Twitter or LinkedIn. But if there is that like major shift happening or some dynamic happening, you can leverage those sort of channels to like build yourself up quickly when everyone's scrambling to try to figure out what you know what's happening in the space. So really it really depends on like the type of company and the market dynamics. I think it's like pretty different depending on that. I love where this is going, right? Cuz cuz when I'm when I'm hearing you say that, I'm hearing it's kind of influencer marketing and it's kind of thought leadership and it's all enabled by a major shift that happened a long time ago in B2C, which is social media that B2B is starting to catch up to, right? Like I I I guess I guess the question is for you, Jeff, right? Like you were in the guts of LinkedIn mm-hmm. and I feel like LinkedIn 10 years ago was a completely different platform than it is right now as far as a native content, you know, platform that now allows these pipes to be distributed. Mm-hmm. Are are you is there always going to be let me rephrase it. What company would not be sh- should not be really looking to leverage social networks and creating influencer plays and like, you know, influence with thought leaders on that channel? Is it like, is there any use case for that? And if not, can you kind of like, give me where your playbook is on how you create these thought leader relationships and how you can do that little bit of nudging so you get that extra PR that's organic? Just to test my understanding, the questions really around how to think about- I I, I did not do you any favors there. Sorry, go ahead. Thinking about how do you message your brand at the right time, the right ways to resonate across audiences. And I think you also added, is there a time when you wouldn't want to do that? Yeah, man, I I guess, I guess, I I guess I went really circular there. (laughs) My my main question is when I'm, when I'm hearing Mike say, leverage a thought leader in your industry to, to gain kind of like a shout out the next time they're talking about something organically, is that a, is that a, social media play? Is that a live events play? How are you guys enabling that kind of stuff? Yeah. Oh, I think you got to play to your strengths. I mean, in, in Mike's example of first base, the founder is a marketing machine. I mean, follow on, on Twitter, you might get sick of hearing about remote work, but he's brilliant. He understands what's happening in the space. He can speak, you know, at length about all topics related to remote work. And so I think in that scenario, benefits a great deal to be out in the spotlight and to be sharing about what's happening and to be answering questions and writing threads and building a following, which I think is now north of 40,000 on Twitter in just like a, about a year. Others don't necessarily have that. And so it requires some coaching. I think one thing I'll share with founders is that they should be doing fewer things done better, communicating the right things at the right time, and making really good decisions quickly. Like FCS, at LinkedIn, Jeff Wiener called that focus, right? FCS being the acronym. And I think it's really smart to think about it that way because you need, as a founder, you have, you know, infinite things to do. And so if fewer things done better requires you to market your business, fantastic. A lot of times, like Mike was sharing early days in these companies, you have to do things that don't scale. You have to work with finding your first few customers. You have to, you know, attend the events that, you know, you can land the relationships that will be, you know, your first investors. So again, I think it's like very customized to the founder's strengths and to, what the company is looking to do. And some companies don't have the capacity to scale quite out of the gates, right? There's a, there's a level of how could we manage this many customers, even if we got them. And so you need to be really thoughtful around who you're acquiring, how you're acquiring them and how you're speaking about it. And so I try to try to focus that in on fewer things done better and communicating the right things at the right time. 
Did I catch an acronym that Mike came up with there? FCS? Is that what it is? Oh, it's no, a, I didn't. FCS is a Jeff Wiener acronym from LinkedIn, but he calls it focus. Yeah. Got it. It was fewer things done better, communicating the right things at the right time. What was the last one? Uh, the speed and quality of decision-making. Speed and quality of decision-making. I like that, Got man. It. I like that. That's really cool. And you know what? Let me let me pick you guys' brain about something that I'm kind of obsessed with, which is category design. How 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 present is category design in the average founder's kind of vernacular and how present is it in yours and how often do you see founders saying, I want to establish a category. I want to go big like this. Is that, is that something normal? And do you recommend it? Yeah, I, I I'll take, I'll take a crack at it first and then Jeff, you, you should jump in. But I would say, so actually one of our, some of our LPs are actually the CEO and CMO of Gainsight. The CMO of Gainsight now, the CMO at Hopin, which is the like virtual events platform. But I think Gainsight was like one of the first to like really come up with a playbook around category creation. And, you know, it was all about like, there was a, there was an early shift to people being, instead of being like customer support to customer success. And like, I think Salesforce was the first to post a job post with that title, but it was like nascent when they started it. And they realized that, and they realized they were like an underappreciated role in an organization. And they decided to build a community that would empower them and like treat them like the superheroes in the community and build software specifically for them, but never in like a salesy way. And they, and they, you know, then, then they started tracking like, okay, let's track like all the things we're doing around category creation and community building to like number of job titles with customer success in it to see if they, because one of their goals was like, can you build the whole market? Can you like make the market bigger and like, build the customer success kind of the idea of customer success and they were incredibly successful like if you look at graphs of they, like and the CMO showed me a graph of like number of mentions of customer success in, on Twitter and like number of job titles with customer successes in it relative to like them do, executing that strategy and then they ended up writing a, a book called category creation and I think like once all of that narrative came out there was like a an, a pendulum swing of like everyone trying to like thinking they needed to create a category and like trying to figure out how to do that. And like, you know, and I think it's just, it's really hard to do. And it's like largely driven by the market dynamics. Like it's just not every market is going to be set up to be able to create a category. And so I think it, it really comes down to like, you need the similar dynamics that Gainsight had. You know, I think Hopin, it'll be interesting. Like I'm sure Anthony who went from Gainsight to Hopin will try to build that out. And, and I'm like, maybe he will, because I think like people who run events at companies are, are pretty underappreciated as well. And it's a really hard thing to do well. And, and so like, if he can kind of evangelize and build that community around that persona within a company, it could be, it could be an interesting strategy. And, you know, obviously virtual events and now hybrid events are probably a newish, new enough category to kind of try to own that category. But yeah, I think it comes down to like, you need I think a lot of people tried to force it that didn't necessarily have the right market dynamics. And I think you need the right market dynamics. Got it. Jeff, did you have anything on that or no? Mike took the words out of my mouth, so he can cool. give me credit for it, I guess. Cool. So <laughs> great. So so it's a move under the right circumstances. Don't try to yeah. force it is what I'm hearing, right? Yeah. And it's also like you need to be, it's usually capital intensive because yeah. like it's just a lot of things that you need to do. And so you need to be in a situation where either as a founder or, or like you have enough growth where you feel like it's not going to be high friction to get a lot of capital. Like 
Nick, Nick at Gainsight was like a seasoned entrepreneur and like he knew if he could execute well and was growing, he'd have access to capital. And they had to raise a good amount of capital to execute on the plan. And it's paid off. Like, you know, they obviously had a great outcome. I think they sold for over a billion to Vista equity. But yeah, I think it's I think it also can can be a more capital intensive way to to do it. So you need to be able to you need to be good at raising money. Yeah, you got to be able to evangelize the problem, right? Yeah, <laughs> be able to yeah exactly. And get yeah. money for it. Yeah, Lydia puts in the comments that Gaines has an amazing company and she was an early adopter and got to do that. Gianni Quintana, who's a fellow South Florida guy, he puts Drift is a really good company. They're that, a good example. Yep. Yeah, in the in the SaaS company uh, that's that's been real good at category design. And it's funny that uh, what what's the what's the platform, the virtual events platform you just mentioned? Hopin. Hopin, yeah. It's, it's funny that you mentioned that one because that's the one that, I feel like category designers are really good at word of mouth. And it seems to me that Hopin has come into my life by different methods, not ad, right? Like through word of mouth now, like you're yeah. the fourth guy that mentioned it in the last like two I weeks. I mean, which- they might be the fastest growing SaaS company of all time. Obviously had like incredible market tailwinds behind them and have been able to raise a ton of money. So have a lot of resources. But yeah, I mean, they were like, you know, right place at the right time with with like, probably the best product at the time for it. And yeah, I mean, they, they've grown tremendously. Are, are you guys familiar with Click, with ClickFunnels and their story? Not really, no. Okay, so so then I can take it a different way, right? Because they used to claim that they were the fastest, or at least he said that he was. Maybe it's the, the fastest non-venture backed growing SaaS company of all time. But that being said, what I love about them, which is something that I've seen Sangram do with Terminus, and I've seen somebody do it at a very small scale, an old partner of mine, is this idea of being a service company that then, you know, goes hard at the community element of it, right? Goes hard at giving on how you would not hire us, then creates a software that allows them to serve their clientele, which at one point, once they've built this community, they turn around and offer it to their clientele. And now they have this perfect little launch like sequenced. Have you guys, is there, have you guys seen any other examples of that or is there anything that you've seen or, or, or how that we've seen a couple of early versions of it. Like we've invested in some companies that were service businesses built a little bit of a community and then kind of transitioned to software, but they're still like early days in, in doing that. So not a ton of experience directly with companies we're investing in. But I'm trying to think if there's a good example. I'll have to think about it. Jeff, anything that co- comes to your mind on examples of later stage companies that have done that successfully? I'll have to think yeah, where, the, the, where the customers end up perpetuating the products. Yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of. And, and listen, maybe it doesn't have to be examples, but like, I don't, I don't know if you've thought about that or, or if you were to do that, kind of like, what are the right? Because I, I know that, Mike, I know that you've been, you've invested in like tech-enabled service companies to a certain extent. Yeah. And I and yeah. I wonder how much of that chatter goes on indoors of like, should we just turn this tech and become a SaaS company versus just being a tech enabled company? How do you go? How do you go through that decision? Yeah, yeah. I, so those companies, like some of the companies we've invested in that are tech enabled service businesses, is you know you can go two directions with it. Like Flexport is a good example of there are a bunch of incumbent freight forwarders and and like customs brokerages. And you could just build a software product and sell into them and sell into the, like the incumbents and try to convince them that they need to adopt technology. Or you can just build your own freight forwarding company and customs broker that's tech enabled from the beginning and just eat their lunch. And like 
you know, so there's some, there's some opportunities where rather than trying to convince an old stodgy industry that they should, they should adopt technology, you should just build the new version of that with technology. And ultimately, like, it's going to be impossible to productize everything you do to make that happen. But you can productize a lot of it over time as you understand the nuances of it because you're servicing it with humans as part of it. And Flexport has been able to like, you know, they, they're they now a multi-billion dollar company in, a, in what is maybe like the largest industry in the world. And like, I, you know, I think they're just going to be like, I think they're going to be a massive company, but they're not a pure software company. Like they are, they're a service business that uses technology to just be so much better than the incumbents. Yeah, that makes sense. And and listen, I've I've been a part of something like that. And we were asking ourselves, should we continue to be a service-based tech business or should we go the route of like selling this thing and transforming the marketplace? When you I don't know if Freeport was having those conversations, if you've had those conversations, does it come down to like founder ambitions kind of thing? Like it's like, no, because I want to be a tech company versus a service company. And maybe I can make 500 million bucks as a service company, but maybe I can make a billion as a tech company or, or what's, what's that conversation? I think it comes down to just how much can, like, can you actually productize everything you're doing in a way that you could sell software? I think a lot of found, I mean, yeah, it comes down to like founder ambition, but a lot of, a lot of it, like there are just some things that you just can't do with technology. And if that's what you do and you can't automate all of it and build software for all of it, then it's a decision of, you know, do you, instead of taking on the incumbents, sell software to the incumbents, which I think depends on, on like the market and how, you know, how much they're adopting technology and, you know, how competitive that space is. But, but yeah, I think, you know, if you're a service company and you can build technology to automate what you're doing, you're probably going to have an opportunity to grow a lot faster than you otherwise would as a service business and, and generate more equity value. But it's a different, it's a different skill set, And like, oftentimes when companies transition from service to software, like they have to hire whole new teams. Like it's just a different mindset different skill set. So I find that it's hard to make that transition unless you're like really all in on it. Like it's hard to straddle the two. That makes a lot of sense. And 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 some of what I heard you say is also, you know, depends on the market. To me it means a lot like depends on the customer, right? Like I I I started in the yeah. construction industry. It's a troglodyte industry that getting the average construction yeah. guy to accept a a tablet instead of a large piece of plans yeah. was a major uphill battle, right? So it's yeah. like I guess you think consumer first and can you actually get people to substitute the status quo for this new fangled tool yeah. that you created, right? Yeah. You see it in uh, Across in the Chasm, right? It talks about big enough to matter and small enough to solve, not one at the exclusion of the other. And so thinking about what is a big enough market where I can reasonably solve this challenge and then move up market over time. And so I think we're seeing this actually a lot now in consulting where these consulting agreements are you know, outsized contract values. And so you see folks coming in who may not have turned it into software yet, but believe they can normalize the data, normalize the intake of certain data points, run models against it, and start to transition what might be a pretty replicatable consulting agreement into a software product over time. And while you're bringing the price point down for the customer, you're bringing the margins up for the investor. And so it's a win-win on both sides and you're displacing an incumbent, but to the point of the conversation, it may start as a services business, so long as it's thoughtful enough to consume those 
data points as assets. Think about them as assets and how they might compound over time, informing the models, informing the software. I think for a large company to transition from services to software, to Mike's point, is a it's a Herculean lift to change over the archetypes of the roles, the emotions of the, of the sales teams, the way that you think about customer value. And so I think that actually leaves a wildly, you know, I think outsized opportunity to upend some of those markets. And that's what you're seeing today. Really smart people leaving those industries who find it easier to build because it's sort of a race of, of resources. The big company has the footprint. They need a race to innovate and the small company is nimble. And so they need a race to build because they can go acquire. It's just a, fec- a function of like, you know, which one do you want to choose? Right. I love it, man. I love it. The, and it makes sense, right? Like it's like the, th- that is your advantage, right? Like if you're the big company, you have all this momentum that you can bank on, but it also makes it harder to steer the ship. While like, if you're the little pirate ship, you can maneuver around and then see if you can build enough, a big enough weapon to take down the big ship. Right. Right. And they kind of come from inside the industry, understand it well, know the customer. It's a lot of opportunity for folks that are in big corporations right now to, you know, create a lot of value for themselves and for the industry. And, but it's a hard jump. You know, we see founders who are really taking a massive leap and a bet on themselves. And I think that's one of the reasons they come to a place like Forum. They want to be surrounded by folks who've done the same, who are going to be in the trenches with them, who are going to give them a little bit of energy every day, you know, inspire them and, and, you know, pat them on the back and be there when things are hard because, you know, it's it's scary to leave a big company like that with a good job and good benefits to you know, try to change the world. Yeah, man, I, you're speaking straight into my heart. <laughs> like, <laughs> I've done it. That makes a lot of sense, and I love that. That's a, that's a really nice little soundbite that we're going to cut out because I I just think it's great great advice, right? Like, it's great advice of this. Yes, when you're inside the machine, you're going to have great perspective into little problems that are small enough to solve and big enough to to build for. And then you got to bet on yourself, right? Like if you were, before we get into Q&A, what advice, and maybe each of you can take a shot at this one, right? But like, what advice would you give the founder apart from joining a community and surrounding yourself from great people? But when you're, when you're thinking about making that jump from corporate to founder, what is the number one thing that they really, really need to understand that they're probably not thinking about yet, or somebody hasn't really told them about that life? Well, let's think about this. So, I, you know, I think there is an, a lot of pressure placed on this notion of starting a company. You need to be passionate about it. You need to, you need to want to do it every day, all day. I, talk, I spoke to a founder recently who shared with me this, this idea that he, he feels guilty all the time, 100% of the time. When he's working, which he, could, which he could do 24 hours a day, he feels guilty he's not with his family. And then he said, but when I'm with my family, I kind of feel guilty. I'm letting my customers and my business down. So I think you have to get comfortable knowing that you're going to disappoint a lot of people, maybe even yourself. And you have to be okay with the idea that, you know, nothing's going to be perfect. You got to not go into this thinking, you know, I'm going to be a billionaire in a couple of years. That's not the goal. I mean, the goal really is to enjoy the work you do, you know, not necessarily have balance between them, but harmony, like enjoy going to work, you enjoy going home, that kind of thing. When I meet founders like that, they have a clear presence of mind. They approach their work with you know, humility yet passion. It's sort of like having a realistic outlook on it. Because I think if you just were sitting inside a big company hearing, you know, people talk about it, they would say, you got to, you know, find your passion. You know, what do you, you know, it's like, I don't know. I'm not sure what I'm passionate about. Maybe I'll find out, you know, as I get older, but maybe instead I'd replace it with, you know, chase your curiosity. And if you, you know, if, if it's endless, if you can't stop looking into it, you know, that could be enough to start a company if you're realistic about what that means for the rest of your life. 
It's a good answer, yeah. man. Mike, you it's got a good something answer. I don't know if I can follow that. <laughs> That's good, man. <laughs> um, Mike texted it to me before that. I just, I just, <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the things we've seen a decent amount of people transition from corporate to startups. And, and I think one of the big things that you, you need to get used to when you make that transition is speed and just like the speed at which you execute the speed at which you make decisions. Like, you know, a lot of times it's, it's just like a faster pace and like you, you can't, it can't take weeks to make a decision. It needs to take hours and like, you need to just do, you don't need to like get approvals from people or like get opinions from people. So I think a lot of it is just like getting used to that, just like, you know, just doing all the time. And like, you may not, it doesn't need to be perfect and you don't need to get like feedback from 10 different people. Like you just need to like trust your instincts because like you took the risk to jump and do this for a reason. Like you understand whatever industry or problem you're trying to solve, hopefully better than most people. And like, you need to trust that. And then I think the other is just like finding your early believers. Like you just need Mm -hmm. to like, and that, that maybe that's investors and like, you know, that's, us in a lot of cases for some of our companies, but, but like, it could be just, it could be peers. It could be you know, your partner. Like you just need to find to Jeff's point, like you need to find early believers to just help keep you through because it's going to be, it's tough. Like, you know, it's, a, it's challenging. It's going to be more of a grind than you think things are going to be harder than you think. And like, you just need that support system around you and you need to find those like early believers who, believe in you maybe even more than you believe in yourself. So I think that's, that's a key part of it too. Yeah. I love it, man. You get, you guys basically, so this is my first, but this is my second go around at starting a company and you kind of like iterated through the, exactly the lessons that I've learned in these two times in order, right? Like the idea, you took the words right out of my mouth. I feel guilty when I'm working because I'm not with my family, but then I feel guilty when I'm not working because I'm supposed to be building this thing. That was my first misery experience. And then, and then Mike, what you're saying it rings so true to me because it's like the one, one of the biggest things that I've noticed is that the people that love you the most have different, have a different set of priorities for you than when you're in like founder mode, right? Like when you're in founder mode, you're in like risk, go big, grow. And people that love you just want to protect you. Right. So they're going to give you advice. That's not going to really help you out when you're, when you're out there failing forward and needing to iterate and needing to do all these things. So I thought that was really good, man. I appreciate that guys. All right. So let's, let's go into Q and A. Let's knock out some Q and A. We got a bunch of really, really good questions. Um, Sam, Sam Young asked originally when we were in the, in the community conversation, and then he rephrased it to, to a good one here. When, when building a community, what are you, what are you looking at for, keeping it productive and and what are you trying to avoid from keeping it harmful? Have you guys thought through kind of how you mitigate the risks of a bad seed or a red flag and how you kind of like keep that on the productive tip? I guess that's one for me. I'll, I'll take it. So on the, on the program side, we think about our accelerator and we think about the, the community there. A lot of it's on rails. A lot of like the value we add is on rails. When I say that, I mean, you know, we have programmatized the value that we add through sessions, through mentors, through office hours, through our Slack channel, through the events that we hold. And so a lot of it is sort of pre-baked in terms of bringing people together, having healthy conversations, and we haven't left that part to chance. So one thing is don't leave it a chance, like put some structure in place. On the other side of things, I would think a little bit about the expectations you set and being conscious of under-promising and over-delivering. You know, you often see the opposite. You see, com- you see companies or communities think about how to tell this big narrative, tell this big story. And that's a recipe for under-delivering. And so you really got to think about 
what is it that you're providing? What is it that is like kind of the core of what you do? How are you measuring it? And that's okay if that's all you share and all you communicate, because it leaves you a lot of room to, to surprise and delight. And I think that's what we're trying to do here is create a notion of progress, momentum, and, you know, real value. And so just got to be careful on the communication front on how you think about the community and not, you know, it's not going to be the next Facebook at Harvard, you know, 20 years ago where everyone was on it and you couldn't even get in. It's, you know, you got to be, you got to be honest about what you're providing. And I think in general, when that happens, you see a lot of, you see a lot of goodness. And I think rather than red flags, I would just challenge that question a bit to say, look for your super connectors, look for the people who can supercharge it and try to put some gas on that fire. That's really an opportunity where there, the red flags seem to fall by the wayside. You know, the, the folks that are not contributing tend to get silent. I love it. Lean into your super consumers, man. That's a, that's a book I, I'll send to you by Eddie Yoon. Super consumers is awesome, man. Um, by the way, on the, on the first advice thing, r- really great comments in the chat, right? Brett Ruiz is a seasoned entrepreneur writing progress, not perfection to, to your point, Mike. And, and Linz Florin is a buddy of mine that he's, he's now just diving into the entrepreneurial journey. He's actually gotten real quick, good market validation. He's putting trusting in six is hard sometimes, man. So definitely need to find your, find your, find your, to what you said, find the people that are cheering for you, right? Like, right. Find the, find the ones that are going to egg you on, man. I love it. All right. Johnny Quintana, South Florida guy, he's he's asking, what is Jeff and Michael's thoughts about micro crowdfunding, angel investors, and other accelerators? And also have heard that Silicon Valley is seen more as the origin of SaaS, but now you have accelerators within most states. Miami is making some waves with Mayor Suarez, getting some pretty interesting SaaS companies such as. All right, so so let's let's break that down because I am kind of obsessed with what Mayor Suarez is doing in Miami. I think it's really, really cool. But what is what are your thoughts on like crowdfunding, angel investing and stuff like that? Yeah, I'll, I mean, I'll take a crack at it. So there are three separate things. I'll start with accelerators because that's easy. Of like, yeah, there are, there are a lot of accelerators out there. Some I think are really good and some are not. And, and so I think you just need to like do your homework when you're looking at accelerators of like, you know, what is the value they're going to provide? How, do they have data points to prove that they're actually providing that value and that companies are like doing good things afterwards? And then can you talk to founders who went through the program to like validate that? And, and I think like you just need to be very clear because an accelerator can be an expensive form of capital from an equity standpoint. So you just need to be very clear on like, is this the right thing for my business? What do I want to get out of it? And do I think, do they have a track record of helping to deliver what I want to get out of it? And so those are the things I would kind of look at from an accelerator standpoint. And, you know, there's certainly like, you know, we take founders from everywhere. You don't have to be in San Francisco. We actually, you can be in person in San Francisco, New York or Toronto, but you can also do it virtually. And there's a lot of, a lot of accelerators that are virtual, some that are like in person in different States all over the place. And so just really understand what that is and what the value you're going to get out of it. Angel investors are great for the most part, like in non-tech ecosystems. I think some angel investors are like can be challenging to work with if they're not used to investing in tech companies. And so just like finding people who have experience investing in tech companies and like understand the dynamics of tech companies and, you know, and then hopefully that can be helpful to you. And then I would say the other piece is like, you know, I, like I, I remember distinctly, I had a company where they had an angel investor who wanted to write like a 5k check into the company. And they're like, is it even worth it? Like, it's a small check. Like I'm trying to raise like hundreds of thousands here. And I was like, look, you never know where value is going to get created, like where the network is going to come from. Like if you, if you like bought, like had good vibes from this person and like, they have a good background that's relevant for you and you think their network could be helpful, like take it. And so they ended up taking it. 
And then that person ended up invest, you know, introducing them to their lead investor for their seed round, you know, like six months later. And it's, it, was, it just shows like angel investors can be really helpful and usually like punch way above their check size from like a how much value add, especially if they're a new angel investor trying to like build a brand and reputation around angel investing to get more deal flow. So I think angel investors can be great. I think crowdfunding used to have a bit of a negative connotation. And I think that's changing very quickly. And so I see more and more companies doing that. I think for consumer businesses, it makes a ton of sense because you could like get a bunch of potential customers. For B2B companies, we see it less often, but I I, I think it, it can work and it, it's helpful. We have one company doing that right now, a company called where they've raised money from VCs and angels, but they also wanted a bunch of the people who are on their app who are like people taking golf lessons from like professional golfers virtually to like be able to invest in the company. And so they allocated a certain part of the round for, for crowdfunding through, I think, Republic. And, and they're allowing like, you know, anyone, but they're like promoting it to like the people on their app who are using their app, like their end users. So that's an example of like their B2C and B2B using crowdfunding. But yeah, I think that the narrative is changing around crowdfunding. And I, I think it's really interesting space to be keeping an eye on. And more and more companies are going to be doing it. That's interesting, man. What's the name of that app again? Scaliest? Uh, skill, skillist. Skillist, like learning skills, est? Yep, yep. There you go, skillist.com. There you go. Awesome, man. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, all right. L- Lydia Flocini, who brings up a really good point that I wanted to hit on. She brought it up in the chat, but I want to bring it up in the Q&A that it's, it's amazing the, the diversity of portfolio you know, like of your companies and the founders on your site, right? Like I, like you guys are clearly unique in this vision of the tech bro in having a very diverse, you know, board and, and, and investors that you guys have. Can you talk about, you know, the, the, did that happen by accident? Like what, what is, are, are you guys out there, you know, focusing on diversity and where you see the value in diversity and inclusion education and programs and funding? Yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Jeff. I can jump in. Yeah. You know, I, I'm very proud of the work that the team has done here. So we have a, we have a broader team beyond Mike and myself, uh, 10 of us. And, you know, in our last cohort of 30 companies, 53% were underrepresented or had a woman at the helm. I think that as we think about investing in companies today, we had really conscious around what have been vicious cycles need to be turned into virtuous ones. You need to give people the opportunities and the access that they may not have had. And I think Forms did an amazing job of that. And one of the ways that we're continuing to not only invest in those companies like we have, but double down in the talent by creating a matching program that our head of DNI is working on, Steph Jones. They're working on connecting students and early in career individuals to our portfolio companies. And so taking it one step further from just the financing to you know actually staffing the companies and helping them you know build companies that think the way that we do about you know building great great businesses that are representative of not only, you know, what they're trying to accomplish, but the customers are trying to acquire. That's awesome, man. I mean, do you guys yeah. find that there's extra opportunity there? Cause people just aren't thinking from that perspective. And if it's all just a bunch of like straight white guys in the room that they don't see an opportunity like Spanx or they don't see an opportunity, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. I think that's part of it. I mean, it's something that we've been thinking about from the beginning and, you know, there's always more we can be doing, but I think our thought process was like, we're investing so early at such like a formative time of the company that like the more diverse the founders are, the more diverse their teams are going to be. And so like, again, for the size of fund we are, we, we felt like we could have like an outsized impact on it, just given the volume of companies and the stage of companies that we invest in. And so, yeah, it's something we've been like thinking about from the beginning. And part of the drive behind that was 
was opportunity. Like if, you know, I think there's just like a lot of founders who are great founders that were overlooked for reasons that they shouldn't have been overlooked for. And, and it creates a lot of opportunity for great businesses to be built. And so, yeah, I think, you know, we're, there's always more we can be doing on that front for sure. But, but it's something that we're like focused on and track and publish our stats publicly to hold ourselves accountable on. And yeah, we're doing, we're doing our small part. Yeah. I love it. I think it's really admirable, man. Kudos to you guys. So Johnny and Gisela, who's up late, she's in London and she's still on the call. Gisela, thank you for, thank you for being here. Yes. That's awesome. Yeah. They're asking, what are, what, are the, what are the main marketing metrics that accelerators and VCs look for in a, in a SaaS startup? Yeah. The main, sorry, marketing metrics? Yeah, marketing metrics. metrics. So like yeah. MRR, ARR, NR, you know, like yeah. CAC, yeah. LTV. Like yeah. what, what is yeah. it that you guys are really focusing on that you want to see? Jeff, you want to start? You want me to? And I'll jump in. I think it's interesting, the place that we sit in the stack, you know, pre-seed, we're seeing some of the earliest companies you can imagine, whether they've just become incorporated, just building a product or have a few customers. And so in some ways, that's not the first thing we look at. You know, we'll look at the quality of the founding team, where they come from, their domain expertise, and the spaces they're operating in. And so there are metrics that you can look at in terms of example, when you're this early. So how's that market performing? How is it growing? What might be changing or shifting? Those are interesting metrics to us. As it pertains to, you know, go to market and sales, I certainly uh, always appreciate to see traction, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. Can we understand why those customers might be buying? What it is that they're solving? How measurable that pain point might be or the value that's created? Because again, in these early days, it might be a team of two or three. I don't expect anyone to have a hundred customers, but if they have two or three great customers, and they can articulate the value really well. To me, that's a scalable sales strategy that I can get behind the wheel of and help them to, to really blow out. Where you'll start to see it become more important and impactful is in product-led growth companies. So you start to look at things like daily or monthly active users. You start to look at you know, growth rates of you know, customer wait lists or potential user wait lists. Those are things that start to get tracked generally through our pre-seed program because they're going to market and we're helping them go to market. And so as they go out to raise you know, later down the funnel, later down the cycle into a seed or a series A, it starts to become a lot more pertinent to understand things like your growth rates, your attraction, the different channels in which you're selling and how those are evolving, what network effects might exist. So can one customer equal two or three as an example? And some of our, some of our portfolio companies, they do. And then, yeah, I mean, the last thing maybe I'll add there is just to have a really good understanding of when you deploy the capital that you're raising back into the company, how those metrics then change. One of the things I think founders often miss that they are selling to investors is, what am I going to use this capital for? And how does the business change? What milestones might I hit relative to ARR, MRR, you know, user growth, et cetera? How am I going to deploy those funds? And so less about the specifics, but more about like the, why are you thinking about it the way you are and how does that evolve over time so that it becomes investable? Yeah. I'll add one other more like granular thing that I look at at this really early stage because it's like you don't have a ton of data to just point on revenue and growth and all the obvious kind of like looking at churn and all that is just looking at like what is how are they thinking about pricing it right now and like what do they think the average contract value will be and then how is that relative to their go-to-market motion and their sales cycle because like what I want to look at is like do I think it's if I like squint and look into the future do I believe that they can plug in sales reps and sales reps can do, can book kind of like four to five X what they cost all in. And, you know, if you're like a 10 K a year product and it's like a three month sales cycle, 
like it, it's hard to imagine that working unless you see a path to growing to like landing and expanding. So really just understanding like where they think the price point is now or can be over time relative to the sales cycle and the sales motion to understand if like an inside sales model is going to work and be like scalable and repeatable. So that's one thing that you know, I try to look at in the really early days as like a, just like a gut check on whether it's going to work. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. I've never heard about like time dynamics, like pipeline velocity combined with CAC and in the early days and how, you know, like how important that would be. That sounds really, really cool. And I love the idea that if you might have one client, but if you're, if you have three clients and they're all raving fans of yours, that's worth way more than just three clients, right? Like yeah. That, that makes a lot and of sense. I, I just wanted to jump in. I saw one question just about the summer cohort. Yeah. Um, sorry, this week, someone who interviewed last week. So just wanted to address it. Yeah. So we, we technically started today. We're, we're still, we had a bunch come in kind of last minute. So we're still making some final decisions over the next like day or two. And then, and then we'll get back to everyone who kind of, you know, had recent interviews with the team. So we'll be, we'll be, we'll probably be back in touch, you know, in the next few days here. Yeah. And that's Ashima yeah. Sharma. She should get points yeah. just for being on this call, right? Like really going yeah. for it. If she yeah. Wants to yeah. No, it's great. I appreciate it. Guys, I want to be respectful of your time. I know you got a hard stop. I got a couple more questions I'd love to get to, but this is awesome. I really, really appreciate you guys doing this. It's an honor to have you guys here as the first iteration of this, the launch of the B2B Community Builder Show. Where can where can people go to connect with you? What do you, you know, like talk about whatever you want to promote right now in either connecting with you or somebody that you want to put a spotlight on, take a, take a minute or two to promote whatever you want. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so our website is just forumvc.com. I'm Mike at forumvc.com. If you want to email me, I'm on Twitter at MG Cardamone. But yeah, that's it. My DMs are open, like happy to yeah, you know, with the with the caveat that my wife's due in a week, so I might be on paternity leave for the next. That's right. Week. <laughs> That's right. Full uh, full disclosure here. Mike yeah. was like, "You better have a backup, guy." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, what about you, man? What's the best way to either get a hold of you or anything that you want to kind of promote? I just dropped it in the chat. That's our new website. The rebrand went fantastic. Kudos to the team internally if they're watching this. Dropped our emails there as well. And if you're starting a company, reach out. I, I try not to miss a single deck or email. I want to know everything that's going on. Teach me something about an industry. Teach me something about a software that's going to take over. I'd love to hear about it and read about it. So uh, don't be shy. And Pablo, thanks for having us. I had a lot of fun. Yeah. And congrats to you on the rebrand and launch of the new show and everything. And yeah, thank you for having us on for the first one. It's, uh, it's great. I appreciate you guys. Couldn't, couldn't have had better guests on, man. Really appreciate it. And if you guys want to hop off, hop off. I just want to thank, I want to thank Lydia, Brett, Gianni in the comments. Kim, thank you for still being here, right? Like Gina, thank you for Gina's my CEO. She's amazing. I'm just, I'm just kind of roll call thanking guys. If you guys want to hop off, right. but, but thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks everyone. Yeah. See you, see you guys. Bye. Uh, Gianna, thank you for staying on this late. Mary, congrats on, you know, getting, getting to be in the forum venture and, and starting your cohort. Ashima, I think it's really, really cool that you, you know, are on this doing the extra due diligence of, you know, being on the call and, 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 and whatnot. So Brett, thanks for always supporting me, man. Thank you for, if you're still on this call, really, really appreciate it. I would love to hear from you on LinkedIn. I would love to hear from you, you know, what you thought, like, let me know, let me know how I can host this better. I'm going to be hosting these every two weeks. I'm going to have a live show. And then I also have my podcast that I release twice a week, right? So there's going to be about five episodes that are not live one episode that is five episodes that are not live one that is 
If you want to be on the podcast, right, Johnny, we're about to talk about that soon. Brett, you're coming on the podcast, but if you've, uh, Jenny is definitely coming on the podcast, but if you've got a good take on community creation for the future of business development, you're a sales and marketing leader, an executive that has a nuanced approach to relationship building and how the future is relationship-based, not transactional-based. I want to talk to you. I want to put you on my stage. I want to help you shine. I want to add value to your journey. So, Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. This is a really cool experience. Gina and I told ourselves that if 20 people show up, uh, then it's a home run. And we still have 21 on right now, an hour and a half later, right? So really, really cool. Thank you so much for showing up. And I'll see you on LinkedIn or email or text me, 305-992-3130. I'm just throwing that one out there. Take care. Appreciate you. All right, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that conversation and you got a bunch of value out of it. And if you did... It would mean the world to me if you reached out to our guest and let them know what you learned, what you thought about it. Everything that you need to connect with them is going to be in the show notes. And on top of that, why don't you double up and reach out to me? I'd love to hear from you. It really is why I do this is so that I can meet awesome people. I would love to hear from anybody that you think should be on this podcast, including yourself, about how you build world-class relationships, how you create community, how you lead companies in this relationships over transactions methodology. And if you believe in that stuff, that is what we're doing at my company, Be The Stage. You can check it out at bethestage.live. But the Cliff Notes version is... We've learned that most companies know that they need to be making content and they know that they really want to drive a community. But where do you start with that stuff? The best way to start doing that is to create an internet talk show because it allows you to create a strategic relationship with a guest one-to-one while you create strategic relationships with the audience one to few and then when we repurpose the show for you and spread it out all over social media you're creating relationships one to many it is the ultimate relationship driven growth engine to feed your entire pipeline marketing team and customer success what companies call their go-to-market strategy can now be driven by community if you're interested in that go to be the stage.live check it out, reach out to me. I would love to create an internet talk show just for you. Now, if you'll indulge me, I'm going to take a play out of the book of one of my heroes, Christopher Lockhead, the godfather of category design, co-author of my favorite business book, Play Bigger, and my favorite newsletter, Category Pirates, which I'm going to link in the show notes because I think you should subscribe. It's the smartest thing basically in the world. Anyways, at the end of his podcast, which is Follow Your Different, he always shouts out and gives a roll call to people that he thanks. And I want to do that too. I want to thank my team at Be The Stage. I want to thank JP, who is the editor of this content, the guy that makes all the cool micro content and makes everything look cool. Joanna, who distributes a lot of the stuff. She writes a lot of the descriptions. Nicola, who is 
uh, my buddy that I've been mentoring for a couple of years out of Bulgaria, a really bright 15-year-old kid that writes a lot of the captions on social media, Marge, who is always keeping track of everything. She is the executive assistant of the dreams that all come true. Gina, who is a world-class integrator. She is our COO. She is the one that is just making all the processes happen. Whenever I say something, she designs a way to make it happen. It's incredible. My business partner, Isar, who without him, none of this stuff could be possible. That guy is the best. He's got an awesome podcast. It's called the Business Growth Accelerator. You should totally check that out. I want to thank my parents. They're my inspiration. They're the best. My family. I love them to pieces. My wife, Marta, who is my muse and my inspiration for everything. If you haven't yet subscribed to this podcast, go do it now. But before you do that, if you haven't checked out either episode seven or episode 69, those are my 2019 and 2020 last call tracks where I give this like rapping, talking, motivational speech over like a really cool beat. It's actually the beat that I have on this podcast right now that I had custom produced by my guy, Michael out of Russia, who's a sick beat producer. Check that stuff out. That is the origin story of my business, the origin story of what I'm up to. And it's really what I am most proud of. Episode seven, episode 69 of this podcast. Hope to see you on the next one. Hit me up on social media. I love you. Don't forget relationships over transactions. That is the way that you win. It's a long game. Human beings are happiest when they're in service. So serve others and you will be able to open any door that you've ever wanted. Never forget that. If you don't know how to serve others, everybody needs an extra cheerleader, cheer for people, be invested in their future, see what you can do for them. It all comes back in the long run. I really hope you reach out to me. I want to meet you. I want to talk to you. I want to help you achieve your dreams. Have an awesome, awesome, awesome rest of your day.